Good morning, Memphis. It is so great to be back with you. Thank you for spending some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And remember, no matter where you are, you can also tune in on WYXR.org. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So we've been seeing more and more attention being given to racial wealth disparities. And in fact, some of the calls to eliminate student loan debt as well as other policy recommendations have been framed around addressing the wealth gap. Uh, the existence and perpetuation of a racial wealth gap, of course, calls into questions these ideas of, you know, a level playing field or meritocracy. And so how then do we make sense of some of our own class positions and even the potential for a class mobility? So to talk more about this, I have joining me today, Dr. Jenny Mueller. Dr. Mueller is an associate professor of sociology and the director of the Intergroup Relations Program at Skidmore College. Her award-winning work has been published in the Journal of Social Problems, Sociological Theory, and Qualitative Sociology, among others, and her book manuscript, Inheriting the Gap, Wealth, Capital, and Intergenerational Race Making in the U.S. is currently under contract with New York University Press. Welcome, Dr. Mueller. How are you? Hello. I am wonderful. I'm excited to be here talking with you about uh, research and uh, probably many things. Yes, yes, definitely many things. Yes, I'm yes. so glad to have you. You know, when first, I absolutely love your work. And the first time we met, uh, which seems like many lifetimes ago at this point, yes. <laughs> or at least definitely for me, um, we met or very first introduced a long, long time ago when I was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And I went to your roundtable presentation at uh, the Eastern Sociological Society's annual meeting. And I think at that time you were just starting what would become the um, producing colorblindness paper. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, but you were, the work of course is amazing, um, but you were just such a beautiful spirit in a somewhat oftentimes depressing <laughs> kind of experience or stressing at least, stressful experience yeah, yeah, yeah. of conferencing and of course me being a grad student and all of that. So I, I just always remember oh that. I love it. I receive it. I reflect it back to you. I think, you know, that's something we've discovered we share in common these days is, you know, we're on that spiritual journey together and trying to bring it into all the spaces of our lives. So that is so cool to hear that. Um, I mean, I remember that it was probably when I was presenting with one of my students, but that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, look at us now. Look, yes. Look at us now. <laughs> yes. Okay. And I love how you said, you know, we are on this spiritual journey of really showing up fully as ourselves all the time. Yes. And I think that's so important. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, it takes uh, ongoing practice, but we, we work at it earnestly, you and I. I know that for sure. Yes, yes. It definitely is an ongoing practice for sure. <laughs> but I think it, it's, you know, I think it's working out. It's working out. 
<laughs> the more yeah, you know, I, feel, I feel good about it. Yes. yes, absolutely. So I have you here today and we're talking about some more of your great research um, in this, of course, particularly around this great manuscript that you are working on and what you know about wealth and capital and intergenerational race making in the United States. So just kind of want to start it off kind of with the, the bigger question or the broader question around, um, you know, racial wealth gap and like why it matters today. Sure. Well, I think it, I mean, it's fun to be talking about this work because for quite a few years now, I've been talking about the producing colorblindness work and the stuff mm -hmm. rooted in ideology and ideas. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to tap into that. And, you know, this project here on the racial wealth gap was really where I started. This is what my graduate work was rooted in. I had no idea that I was going to take this journey into white ignorance uh, <laughs> uh, that I've taken, and it's been wonderful, um, but it's, it's great to come back to this work. And really, you know, I am rooted in a theoretical tradition that is very focused on material outcomes. Racism as a material reality, as something rooted in resources, real tangible access to opportunity, right? And, um, you know, the, the term systemic racism has gotten a lot of attention recently. And I think it's become part of the public lexicon in a way that is really new, um, at least for, for the dominant sort of mainstream. But I think still a lot of people don't realize what it means to talk about racism as something uh, systemic and rooted in materiality. And the racial wealth gap is a, is a particularly important um, indicator of systemic racism because it captures not just what's happening right now, it really captures um, how racism is something that gets structured and embedded into a society and that it creates intergenerational patterns of resource distribution and resource extraction from people of color. And um, when you look at the statistics today, the racial wealth gap is still extreme. So even as we see these other advancements or at least what people perceive as racial progress in society, um, the integration of institutions and so forth, uh, is the case that the racial wealth gap really hasn't closed much and it often widens. So during the recent housing recession, the racial wealth gap actually worsened. Black families still only own literally like cents on the dollar compared to white families wealth. So it's around eight to 10 cents on the dollar. Um, black families, those patterns are found also amongst indigenous families and other uh, families of color. And these, again, are conditions that are not improving over all these supposed decades of racial progress. And part of that is because the racial wealth gap, I mean, is certainly captured in ongoing practices of, of resource distribution and extraction, but it's also rooted in this historical legacy of white domination. And so that's the sort of big question I'm looking at. And it has real practical importance. You know, you mentioned the idea of mobility and really what we're talking about here is, um, we're talking about individuals and families' ability to um, not just survive and provide, 
but to survive crises when those happen. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we see COVID now presenting a lot of uh, crises for folks in relationship to employment and relationship to health. Um, when you have the buffer of wealth um, and that, you know, we're not even talking about massive amounts of wealth, but when you have home equity, when you have the buffer of a safety net, right, it helps you survive those crises and that it helps you create new opportunities and launch new opportunities for future generations. So it's an indicator that really gets at so many of these deep um, dimensions of inequality and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And I love how you are really making this idea of systemic racism, like you said, tangible, right? Because systemic racism as a term is something that is being circulated more or people kind of know this idea or know it's bad, right? But how does it actually show up in our lives, right? That's very different than just understanding kind of this idea of systemic racism. So I love that looking at this particular manifestation we can see those tangible effects of racism, those lived effects. Yeah. And then it helps us. And again, I, I want to stay focused on the wealth, but I, I want to give this little nugget here, which is that it helps us rethink about the way in which ideas and epistemology and ideology, how that is not what's producing the material order exactly, but that is derived from that material order. And then it comes into the work of maintaining that material order. So white people, when we talk about white ignorance um, and, and misunderstanding about how racism works, that is in service to maintaining my domination as a, as a white person in society, rather than assuming that, oh, if we can just fix the ideas, we'll fix everything else, right? When you, when you see it rooted in the materiality, it, it changes how we analyze everything and think of everything. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And just really, you know, taking, as you mentioned, kind of that, those historical legacies, those historical material legacies, and looking at how they are now in our contemporary society. Because I think that's another important piece, too, when people think about racism, you know, they oftentimes still are thinking about, oh, something that happened a long time ago, like we can grasp that it's something in the past um, and what that may have meant, but making those contemporary connections is a lot more difficult, especially when it comes to that wealth aspect, <laughs> that material aspect. I think we still understand kind of like the attitudes part of it, yeah. um, especially now, um, but that, you know, what does it mean for my lived reality? What does it mean for how I even think about my own position in society? I think that's a different, right? A different understanding altogether. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So your work, um, is really looking at this idea of wealth making, right? And how it, you know, is reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. So I know you mentioned that this was actually the work that you kind of started with. Um, so what was that first initial interest in this work? Yeah, so it's it's kind of an interesting one, at least to me, hopefully to others. But um, so I, I initially set out to examine racialized wealth transmission in families. And I wanted to really get into this deep generational effect that you were just talking about. And so I started out um, interviewing families in Texas where I was living at the time. And I was interviewing multiple generations of families. And um, I had just started on that. And I thought like many people who are teaching, right? We often bring our scholarship into our classrooms. And I thought, um, 
oh, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to start teaching about this wealth gap information. I'm going to start teaching about these social policies, like the Homestead Act and like the GI Bill. And then I'll have the students investigate this in their own family history. So it really was just rooted in a teaching exercise that I was using to help my students understand this project that I was doing. And I thought, gosh, I might want to write a teaching article um, on this assignment, which I subsequently did. And so I started, uh, I submitted for IRB approval and I started collecting this data from my students where they were tracing their family's intergenerational transmissional wealth. And as I started to um, read these papers and analyze them, I realized, my goodness, like here I have the capacity to gather much more data than I would have been able to gather on my own if I had stuck to that original interview methodology. And I have not only um, the capture of these histories of wealth transmission, I have how the families are communicating that wealth history to their, um, to their, the youngest generations in their family. And I have how those youngest generations are making sense or not making sense of that, um, uh, uh, social transmission, right? And so the ways in which I can parse this data becomes, um, you know, pretty expansive. And so I abandoned the original methodology and I just started collecting further data from the students. Um, of course, without coercion, you know, it's IRB approved. I always think that's important to say, right? That this is not, that, that the way it was used in teaching is not how I'm using it in terms of the analysis, but, um, yeah, so again, you know, the students go through a um, set of lessons where we talk about this history. We talk about everyday practices like inheritance, right? Things that we know in the sociological literature and historical literature are, are connected to the wealth gap, but which we don't have this sort of um, empirical record of how it's playing out in individual families. And um, the analysis that the book presents, it presents several types of analysis. I talk about the ideological stuff as well, but the thing that I really would love to talk about here is um, how these historical um, policies and how access to uh, white exclusive wealth policy in the past, how that shows up in contemporary families history. So what I did when I analyzed these papers, I was looking specifically at how, at where these original assets were acquired and how they were passed through the family generations. Mm -hmm. um, is there a particularly compelling <laughs> example or something that really stuck with you that you could give us as far as like this transmission of wealth throughout a family? Well, I'm so happy that you asked. <laughs> I, I like to think there are many compelling examples, but um, maybe I'll start just by sharing the example that I'm opening the book with. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I start um, with the story of uh, Gregor Hughes, or what I'm, who I'm referring to as Gregor Hughes. And um, this is a young guy who fought in the uh, uh, Texas War of Independence. Um, 
sometimes uh, people call it a little less romantically, the Texas revolution, uh, something we're sort of seeing born uh, alive right now in our Republic. But um, he, he fought in the war of Texas revolution. Um, he lost his right arm. He was injured in his right arm and lost his right arm. And as a result of that, he was entitled to a military land grant. He, he got 170 acres um, for his service. And so this was common practice at the time. Cash was in very short supply for most of the 19th century. And so the Texas Republic and later the state of Texas was uh, in common practice of supplementing the meager pay that soldiers got with what they thought of as their most abundant resource, which was land. So this was very, very common. Um, in fact, this 170 acres is pretty meager in compared to what most people are given. If you look at the historical record, the, the uh, Republic was in practice of giving between 320 and 640 acres. Mm. People got money for fighting in particular battles. Battles, their heirs would get, or excuse me, they got land, um, not money. Their heirs would get that land as well. And they would often get the maximum amount on the assumption that their, their uh, ancestor would have fought the whole time if they could have. And so when you look at just the land that was um, passed down uh, in relationship uh, to the Texas Revolution, what veterans of the Texas Revolution got, 3.2 million acres of land. Through these, um, through these, what they called bounty and donation grants, until 1887, when the program was appealed. And coming back to Gregor, this had a really um, pivotal impact on the family. So he bequeathed that land to his son. His son held it for several years, and then he traded this original land for land in another county. Um, it was on that land that his daughter um, was living where she met and married her husband. They ended up um, um, using a portion of that land to purchase acreage in yet another county with a little bit north of where they were living. They expanded then that original 170 acres once more. And those two members of the family launched a new life together. They established a multi-generational family homestead from that original sort of inheritance of Oak Gregor's land. Now you fast forward to uh, the new millennium and uh, Gregor's uh, one of his many descendants, uh, a student I call Trisha, is sitting in my class at one of Texas's major uh, public universities, which itself was formed on the basis of a land grant, mm -hmm. um, as many public institutions were. And she knows probably very little about this ancestor <laughs> until she conducts this research, but she makes a very important discovery as she's interviewing family members to find out about this. Um, uh, one that impacts her life directly, which is that six acres of that original land is set aside in her father's name and one day that land will pass to her. And so here you see a, an, a concrete linkage mm -hmm. from an original distribution of land to Trisha. Um, and that would be interesting enough on its own, but now we need to bring in the parallel point, which is that, of course, this isn't just land that's sitting there, right? This is land that's occupied by um, indigenous people. This is land, you know, that's being basically taken and redistributed to white families. And here's just one example, right, of what that sort of distribution means and how that literal history of racism um, sits in 
our classroom sits in our nation, sits amongst us all, right? Um, and really is part of that ongoing reproduction of inequality and, and white domination. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. <laughs> I can, you know, I am like taken aback. Um, let's take a quick break. And then we, when we come back, I wanna hear what Trisha and other kind of similarly situated students kind of thought about this, this assignment and you know what they did with this information um you're listening to let's grab coffee on wyxr 91.7 fm this is let's grab coffee on wyxr 91.7 fm i'm sana and i'm here with dr jenny mueller and we'll we are talking about wealth we're talking about land we're talking about distribution of wealth and inheritance and before the break you told us you know, this really great story about just one example of this transmission of wealth, um, you know, with this kind of student example of Trisha and her having the six acres that she'll, you know, inherit, um, which I'm like, wow, I wish I was going to inherit <laughs> some land. <laughs> um, but for students like Trisha who realize like, hey, the land my family has, or even the land that I'm set to inherit um, came from this legacy of racism. You know, what do they think? Yeah, well, I mean, now we're getting into the into the producing colorblindness piece of things. I think I'll start here, which is that for most students um, in their papers, they often make clear that they do not expect to find any evidence that corroborates the things we've been talking about. That is something they um, nod to again and again. And then they talk about how surprised and shocked they are to see um, what shows up. And so I think for many, it is a very impactful um, lesson, at least in an intellectual way, that I think it brings to light how systemic racism works um, through this particular mechanism of wealth transmission. But I, as you can imagine, right, it's, it's very complicated. So I think many students, they are willing to sort of concede that reality, but there is still resistance, right? And so um, one of the most striking things to see is that some students, even when they would surface very clear evidence of this transmission, they would, um, and they would document it, they would analyze it, um, <laughs> but then they would basically say, but I don't think this has anything to do with, um, you know, ongoing inequality, or I don't think this has anything to do with me. Um, one of the examples that really gets people and you know, of course, I try to bring empathy to the to the student accounts, but um, one of the students talk, starts her paper talking about how difficult she thinks this assignment has been because, you know, she, she doesn't have large ties to slavery. It was just really, really hard to write. And then just a few lines later, she says, my family did dabble in slavery until 1864. And that just really rocks people to hear that phrase dabbling in yeah. slavery as one does, I guess, you know, during, during that era. Um, and then she uses a very creative logic to try and dismiss the meaning of that. So she can't do what a lot of people do, which is, you know, just dismiss like my family wasn't alive during slavery. We didn't have slaves. And so therefore we can't, you know, be held to account for that. She goes on to tell a story about how her grandfather told her that at the end of the Civil War, one of his ancestors had taken 
um, a slave to, to, you know, help him while he was serving in the military. And once the war was over, he told the slave that, the, that he could leave, but he chose not to. And the point she wants to make here, and she, she says this directly, is the fact that this relative was willing to let the slave leave indicates that this, is, this could not have been a um, key to the family's wealth. Because if it was if it was a key to the family's wealth, then that slave would not have been expendable. I mean, you know, we can look at it as a just it's a really contorted logic. It doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's a way to sort of recover that innocence of the family. And so that was part of it too. But I think, you know, for a lot of students, I don't, I don't remember if uh, Trisha's in particular, I have to look more closely back at hers, but I think for a lot of students, it does raise deep cognitive dissonance, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have this sense of um, the goodness of their family. Mm-hmm. And this really rocks the sense of that. And that is where the logics come to flow. And so they'll say things like, surely my family did not know that they were doing anything connected to racism, because if they did, they, they wouldn't have done this. And yet, you know, their own papers sort of um, expose that as a, as a sort of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know that's kind of how some of the students were making sense of, you know, what they found. But then through this process, how was this wealth transmission, this, you know, land inheritance, how was that being communicated to them from their families? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we talked about that in class and and talked about how to be good researchers and Mm -hmm. um, how to sort of not lead with the the quote unquote race card. Although I think some of them probably did. I I can recall at least one student who said that once the family knew that this was about a project related to race, they were like, nah, we're not talking about this. Um, Or they would say dismissive things like uh, one of my favorites is a student whose grandma told him that this was just a lot of gobbledygook from a a kooky lefty prof or something like that. But I think, you know, it taps into the fact that many people are really invested in their family genealogy and invest in their family stories. And so I think in many families, this became a way to transmit information that they're actually quite proud of, you know? Um, They're not, you know, they're telling these stories about what happened and they're not doing the racial analysis while they're telling them, right? They're they're talking about, about, uh, Uncle Gregor or or distant relative Gregor who like fought in in a brave uh, war of independence right and and um, you know lost his arm and justifiably received land as as a compensation for that and so I think you know one of the things students sometimes talk about too is just how much they appreciated the opportunity to, to talk with family about this. But I think to you, to your original question, I think for many families, this is just part and parcel of telling the story of how your family came to be. These may not be conversations that would have happened were it not for the assignment, but I think for many people, it becomes kind of a, a great way to tell that, that family narrative. And indeed, sometimes the students are talking to members of their family who are sort of the amateur uh, genealogists in the family who have who've done a lot of digging and research on these things. And, and um, you know, the conversations change, though, when the students start to introduce the racial elements of it, um, you know, and that they document that in their papers, too, some of them, the way in which, I, I mean, 
some of them themselves, some of the students themselves are caught up in wanting to believe the fantasy. Some of the students are able to sort of separate what this means from a standpoint of race and racism and what they're hearing from the family. And, and they do, um, you know, they try to engage those conversations with family, but you can see how the family's responses are often um, defensive as well, or they might account for it. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that is important and maybe a little bit disturbing is that for many people, this just becomes a informational exercise, right? And so it's like, wow, I didn't know this. Oh gosh, now I really see how my family is like part of this history, the end, <laughs> right? And meanwhile, you know, the legacy, back to where we started, right? The legacy of these things, the material legacy of these things sits in white families and it sits in um, black families and indigenous families and, and other families. And that's part of the book as well is talking about the stories from black students and stories from um, uh, Mexican American students about the ways in which their families had that material ext extracted, that land extracted from them, the labor extracted and how that sits in their contemporary realities as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, as I was listening to you talk, you know, it's, you know, all these stories about family, right, what their family legacy has meant, right, especially if there is like this great, you know, family history of a Gregor, or, you know, someone like that, right, so that family folklore, so and on one hand, you have this assignment that's very much potentially disrupting that hero narrative, you know, within family, so there's some investment in keeping that kind of folklore alive, but I'm also, as I was listening, hearing you really talk about citizenship, right? Whose rights, who deserves them, and, and what does that mean to be, you know, a citizen and get this land and what you're able to do with it, or even fight in a war, right? And, you know, whatever happens because of that as well. So I hear it very much also as this story of citizenship and the rights that you get from being recognized, you know, as a citizen. Right. And I mean, we need to speak to then of the ways in which citizenship as i mean you know in your work right the racialization of citizenship like for for americans the idea of being a citizen was tied to the idea of being white mm -hmm. and then that led to all the things that are connected to that status as a citizen and it, it meant that you were the as um uh critical race scholar kimberly crenshaw talks you were the uh the owner of labor you weren't the product of labor, right? You were uh, the the owner of land, not uh, somebody who had the capacity to tend to land properly, to use it properly, to um, um, to um, own property as opposed to be property, right? That that is really rooted in whiteness and the way that whiteness and citizenship are inextricably linked in U.S. history and literally, right? You know, mm -hmm. for, for for decades upon decades, you had to be considered quote unquote white to become a citizen, a citizen. Mm -hmm. and then all of these material uh, connections come into play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned also reading these narratives 
from Black students or Mexican students or other students as well. And I'm wondering in what ways was this idea of wealth transmission being communicated to them or the ideas of inheritance or land inheritance being communicated or not, right, to them? Yeah, this is, I mean, I think for many people, this is not a conversation that they've had in the family. I think it's, it's, um, it's just normative that it's, it's part of the backdrop, I think, for many of, of the students, right? And I think to the extent that they might have come in with a sense of wealth or, or what that meant in their family, it might have to do with, um, you know, like, I didn't have to, you know, I'm having my college covered for me or that sort of thing. But like this kind of, um, this kind of history is not part of the everyday conversation in the family. I think it's the backdrop to what's happening in the family. And that's part of the power of the assignment um, is that it sort of disrupts that um, running <laughs> backdrop. It, it, it pulls the curtain back a little bit, or at least it attempts to, or to disrupt the curtain, attempts to pull the curtain back and expose a thing that that really is just, you know, they're not thinking about what makes their lives possible most of the time. And I mean, in fairness, like that's part of, you, you know, like we've all been young, we understand what it's like to take a lot of crap for granted, right? Um, so I don't wanna present this as exceptional necessarily, but it's it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely meaningful. I mean, again, just thinking about how all of this that we take for granted is very much shaping the direction of our lives, right? Yeah. So if you're the student who's able, you know, to go to college because of some sort of wealth or, you know, from your family, or if you're the student who is set to, you know, have access to some acreage of land, it's very much impacting, you know, our lives and not just the lives of those students, but also other students who are not receiving that sort of wealth transmission. Yeah, I, I, I do really want to bring in some of the voices of the students of color because I think one of the most um, heartrending things for me as I, as I was developing the analysis and just reading the papers is to see the distinctions. Like, as I said, for many of the white students, this is just an academic exercise. It does create cognitive dissonance for some, you know, they, they think it's, you know, disturbing to find out, but it's like, wow, that's a reality. The end for, for students of color, the learning, I think, I think for many of them, seeing the material basis of racism is also a new lesson. They sort of understand that implicitly, but I, I will never forget one black student talked about how he didn't use the word liberating, but he was, he basically was implying like what a revelation it was for him to realize that racism that he was experiencing wasn't just about people disliking him as a person or being hateful, that it was material exploitation that was really forming the basis of that treatment he was experiencing. And for him, that was a real revelation and, and as a pivotal um, recognition for, for students as well. But for many of, this, of the students of color, it becomes then this sense like, well, I have to be the one to change the trajectory of what's going on in my family. I have to take on response. Like I see all these things, it's devastating to learn that. And now I feel a responsibility to make things better. That's, there, there is no comparison 
to what students of color are, are saying in this regard than what white students are saying. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm just uh, working on a paper right now that talks about the practical takeaways of students. And for white students, almost none of them are like, gosh, I feel like I have to do something about this. Almost none of them communicate that as a takeaway. So yeah, I think, um, and I'm, I'm happy to share a, a, a sort of companion story if you want to hear like what this sort of land extraction looks like in, in families, but I think it's important to highlight that these are things, this is what it means to talk about racism as relational, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, you know, the advantages that whites enjoy, the resources that we hoard, right, come at the expense of people who are racialized outside of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I would love it if you share the example. Yeah, I mean, again, there's like a million to share, but one <laughs> that um, one that always uh, sticks out to me, I think really sort of makes some of the points that we're, we're working with here is um, a student that I call Charlotte. She um, is black and she talked about a um, great, great, great grandfather who was born a slave on a cotton farm. And um, a she finds in the research that this ancestor actually was one of the fortunate, uh, fortunate people who once they were freed from slavery, they received some land, right? That, you know, many people are familiar with 40 acres and a mule. We know that many of those promises were not followed up on, but this ancestor actually received some land after, um, after slavery ended. And during the 1870s, um, this ancestor and his wife both passed away. They left their four adult children to maintain possession of the land, including um, a, a child that appears to have been Charlotte's great, great, great grandmother. And Charlotte talks then about the way in which that land was eventually lost in the family. So many people may not be aware, but it was often the case that you had to be able to account for your land. And sometimes squatters would show up on your land and squat on the land. And if the land had been formerly undeveloped and the squatters were there long enough and they had they did something to help cultivate that land, that land could actually become theirs. And so um, this great, great grandmother tried to make record of the land and its value. She tries to survey the land. She finds that there are squatters on the land and that became a problem for the family. So um, she tries to go to the local, um, uh, the local state uh, uh, f foundation to report there are squatters on the land and I want to make record of this land so that I can keep it. And it's, you know, they drag their tails. They took a long time to get back to her. And by the time um, this process was sort of extended, she lost a lot of this land to these squatters. So they had about 10 of an original 40 acres left from this land. Um, they lost further land. So they had this 10 land. Um, to prevent that from happening again, the issue of squatters, and you can imagine, right, Black families, the idea that you could rely on the um, 
infrastructure to protect you, right? The legal infrastructure to protect you is, you know, that's just not a reality. And so it shapes the decision-making of black people at times. So to prevent that from happening again, they actually sold seven more acres to white farmers and they retained that three. And she was, she got a lot of this information from her grandfather. And when she interviewed him, he talked about how common it was for white farmers to show up on their ranch to try and buy the land. And that, um, when they refused to sell, the white farmers would sort of escalate their efforts. So they would make threats about, we're going to burn the land, we're gonna um, kill your family, we're gonna take your land. And those were often not empty threats, right? We know that the historical record documents that that was often uh, the case. So they were able to retain these three acres more recently, they've lost further on that land because there was a long line of property tax debt. Mm, yeah. And so uh, they sold an additional two acres. Mm. And um, it was particularly sort of egregious when they found out that there was oil on the land. And this was often the case in the student stories as well, that those that many of the students, white students in particular, reported finding oil on the land. And that becomes a source of ongoing um, money in the family, ongoing income in the family. So you can see here, this kind of brings this, all these sort of pieces together, right? That um, the legal structure is uh, supporting white people from extracting land that were now owned by black landowners. Then actual sort of everyday violence is playing and coercion is playing part. And then again, knowing that you live in a social structure where you cannot you don't have access to the legal infrastructure. You are under the threat of literal violence. Um, this family is making some decisions, right? To, to offload some of that land. And rather than it becoming an in income generating source through this oil, they've now lost access to that. So um, it really highlights how this isn't just about the state distributing the land. It's about all the, the way these pieces of private practice and, and public infrastructure work together to support white families, to make, I, I use the metaphor of an inheritance pathway that they're acquiring these pavers, they're putting together they fit nicely and then they can walk along that pathway versus families of color struggling to get the pavers when they get the pavers struggling to keep them and really never being able to or, or often not being able to build that easy pathway mm -hmm. wow that story is heartbreaking yes um so heartbreaking because you're just you know as you're talking like in my mind I'm just imagining all this land just you know being given away being taken you know being threatened yeah. and for so many of the other students you spoke about for the white students you know this land inheritance was an opportunity right um that has paid off <laughs> multiple times over whereas in this case of Charlotte and I'm sure other students examples as well it really wasn't an opportunity at all it didn't really lead to kind of all this all these good things right all this wealth or safety and security um that you know we think of land or home ownership or you know things like of that nature really leading to yeah wow. Absolutely. Uh, when she was interviewing her grandfather, she, and she's hearing this story about the white farmers coming to the house, and she asked him, you know, my gosh, you know, what was that like? He, and he said he was a little frightened by those exchanges. You know, he kind of minimized it. But again, these were not like empty threats. And um, 
just the sense, I mean, I think it sort of brings together too that wealth isn't just about what you can buy in the world and how you can access, you know, education and build homes and things. It's about a sense of safety and security in, a, in sometimes a literal sort of uh, like existential way, like my ability to just protect my body mm-hmm. is sort of connected to the wealth we own and in many cases. Yes, absolutely. Um, Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Jenny Mueller, an associate professor of sociology and the director of the Intergroup Relations Program at Skidmore College. And we have been chatting about her book, um, forthcoming, um, entitled Inheriting the Gap, Wealth, Capital, and Intergenerational Race Making in the United States. And I'm wondering, you know, once we get our hands on this book, right, once it is in print, what are some of the main takeaways that you hope readers will get from this work? Mm Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one one thing to consider is a point that we talked a little bit about in the last one, which is that um, looking at these cases and looking at the case of the racial wealth gap and, and a, a primary argument I make in the book is that it demonstrates the way in which racism operates by bringing together the sort of formal structure of society, the everyday practices of society, and the ideologies and and sense-making that uh, happens in a society, that those things work in sort of um, a integrated way to maintain racism and maintain white domination over time. So, you know, when we're talking about some of these policies like Homestead Act and, and GI Bill, that plays nicely with everyday practices of private wealth inheritance, right? And that plays nicely with the ways in which white people shield themselves from understanding the racialized dimensions of their family history. And they lean on, I think, as you introduce this, these ideas of meritocracy and these, these you know, fantastical stories about the, the family working hard and slowly acquiring and building, that those things all work in tandem with one another to reproduce race. I mean, this is what I mean when I talk about race making. Mm-hmm. Um, can I share one more story? Yes, yeah. I, I like this story because it's a short one, but I like it because it really highlights how um, important the state is in these particular patterns. Because in some cases, what this this is how part of how whiteness is built as well, and that that I think is another key takeaway. So one of my students, Bella, talked about a, a great great grandfather who came to Texas um, from Germany sometime in the late 1880s. And this is her writing about um, the story. She says that once he was in Texas, he bought some land. He had his wife and children um, come to Texas, but he was unable to keep the land. He lacked funds. And so his wife and children went back to Germany, but he stayed in Texas. He was determined, I guess, to to make um, things work. And he finally acquired land through the Homestead Act of 1862. So if people aren't familiar, the Homestead Act distributed land, uh, quote unquote, unoccupied land. Um, If if, uh, folks were citizens or, or veterans, um, they could come, they could 
uh, worked the land. And if they, they worked it for five years, they basically would acquire that land. So this was a massive, massive asset distribution policy. And work by uh, Trina Williams demonstrates that nearly all of this land went to white families and that it has that this ongoing uh, contemporary impact. But um, his wife and, and kids came back to Texas and they began their lives. I like the story because it demonstrates, look, he tried, he got here, he uh, got some land, he couldn't keep it together, right? And, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I mean that they tried to launch things themselves as new immigrants and were unable until they got this homestead land. And that then changed the trajectory of their family's history. And Bella tells, you know, narratives about how this sort of traces down her own generation as well. So I think that's another really, really important takeaway is that the, the US state was actively involved in disseminating resources to white families, what uh, Ira Katz Nelson calls white affirmative action, right? Mm -hmm. And that these um, resources went on to change the trajectory of white families history in a way that, and build whiteness really, build white Americanness in a way that would not, uh, and maybe could not have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering too, because just thinking about, you know, the students who did the assignment and how you said many of them, you're working on an article now about kind of these practical applications. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering in a similar way for people who will read your book, um, you know, do you think they will be able to kind of take this information and maybe do something practically yes. with it? Or will it be another kind of like, oh, this is really interesting. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, the doing isn't for lack of information, right? I think, you know, that's... <sighs> A core premise of critical race theory is that races, you know, which has come under a lot. I mean, that would be a whole nother show is just to talk about all the lore around critical race theory right now. But that, you know, white people are so incentivized by the materiality, by the material resources and, and the great ways we get to feel in a system of white supremacy that we're, we face very little incentive to actually do things. But to, to bring it to a more positive uh, point, yes, of course, of course, this can be the basis of policy. Um, another uh, uh, social economist working on us, probably many people have heard of Sandy Darity. He has been really leading uh, the charge um, toward reparations. He has a great new book with a co-author. Um, I need to find her name so I can give proper credit. Um, Kirsten Mullen, and uh, they just wrote a book called From Here to Equality about reparations for Black Americans in the 21st century. And, I, and they draw a lot on my research um, and this, I, you know, to, to put meat on the bones of the fact that we're not just talking about lore here, we're, we're talking about the ways in which people, there are people who are owed things, um, people of color who are owed things. And so, you know, the conversation about reparations is building right now. Um, what that will look like is complicated. I think the idea question of land for me is always complicated because um, land distribution and any reparations related to land, right, has to deal with the question of settler colonialism and in indigenous disposition, dispossession. And so, um, these are complicated questions, but we have a duty and a responsibility to, uh, to address them. Um, and, and yes, I think, you know, I will hope that people will read this, that it will make them think more deeply about their own family history. I hope that people will use this when they're teaching their students and that it can become a source of, of learning because 
um, the learning on its own doesn't automatically mean we're going to like get in the struggle and, and you know, work toward policy and work to, you know, abolish white domination, but we can't do that work well unless we have a very clear understanding of these mechanisms, a clear understanding of how these things work and a clear understanding that it isn't just about being nice to people. It isn't just about ideas. It isn't just about changing your attitudes. It's about really changing the material relations of race, intervening on those, um, distributing resources differently, um, making it harder for white people to hoard <laughs> Uh, resources from from people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that your work is looking at these material realities. Um, as we've talked about, you know, throughout our conversation, that's, you know, like that is the piece of the conversation that we're, you know, not paying enough attention to, right? We get very much stuck in the feelings aspect yeah. of it. Um, and yet we're talking about, in this case, like the very real transmission of property, right? Physical yes. land, something that can be seen and touched it, you know, um, has set up multiple generations for yeah. wealth and prosperity. Well, and that's the rub, right? Because if getting, uh, if, if, if committing to this work means that I have to, um, be part of redistributing some of these resources, right? That that's that's the rub. That is where it becomes complicated. And that is where all the fantastical thinking comes into play, right? Because that is ultimately the thing that's going to be hardest to bring white people on board with, right? We we're gonna have lots of white people who know a lot of things about racism, um, but getting uh, uh, white people to commit to actual resource distribution is something else, right? Um, you know, it's, I, I want everybody to have what I have, but I don't want to give up anything that I have, right? And I think, you know, what this means is that in part, this, this comes um, up against other uh, forces, right? Like privatization, it, the individualism that is so inherent to American society, right? That we're talking about convincing people to collectively invest in public schools, to collectively invest in um, the way that we use and resource land. And, you know, we can't even pe get people to collectively wear masks so we all don't like, um, you know, just destroy the population. And so I think, you know, again, I don't want to be the like, I, I believe we always have a responsibility. Those of us who believe in freedom, we can't rest until it's done as Sweet Honey in the Rock uh, sing, but we also have, that means we have to always hold hope, right? That um, just just laboring in the resistance is, is the work and that, um, yeah, we have to keep pushing. <laughs> yes, I love exactly how you said, you know, we have to keep, you know, hope. And I'm wondering what is keeping you hopeful these days? Oh gosh, you should have warned me. <laughs> Trigger warning. No, um, it's funny. I mean, if, 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 if I can indulge us a little bit, I'm going to come back to the spiritual journey question. So I do this ceremony at the beginning of the year. One of my very dear friends um, introduced me to this ceremony. It's called the White Stone Ceremony. White Stone Ceremony. At the beginning of the year, you kind of meditate and wait for a, a word or a phrase to come that becomes your intention for the year. It becomes your new name. And the first year I did it, 
um, the word that came to me was hope. And I'm going to tell you when it came to my spirit, I was like, no, thank you. I don't want that word. I don't like it. It freaks me out. It scares me. What if I hope and I don't receive? Right. And um, so I think, you know, I embraced that new name for the year. And um, what keeps me hopeful is the fact that people stay in this work. I mean, when my students ask me that question, sometimes I, I point to people who've come before me, right? Who had much less reason to hope than I do um, and found ways to hope, right? When I think of enslaved, enslaved black people, right? Who, who probably felt very little reason to hope, but, but resisted. Then I think, well, gosh, I have, zero excuse to pretend like I, I can't find hope. But I think too, you know, like the students that I teach at Skidmore, I, I will give a little shout out to them. It's a different, uh, I, I love my students everywhere, but teaching at Skidmore is a different kind of experience for me. It's a really new kind of experience. We have very much more um, um, personal connections with the students we teach to and they, they are really, really trying to work through the stuff. And, and I will say my wife, since they're really trying to work through the stuff, they're really trying to think through, okay, how do I address not just the feeling stuff? How do I address these material things? And I think, yes, like, you know, we just have to keep telling the story and keep presenting the evidence and trust that the people who really do want a different kind of life, who really want to join the process of liberation will get on board. And I think, you know, I will... Um, say one more thing, which is that a pivotal part of my own evolution as a person, but as somebody who grew up white identified, who understood myself as white, and as I've been unpacking the different layers of that and trying to um, sort of um, loosen the hold of that whiteness on, on me, right? It was very important for me to realize my own liberation as a person <laughs> is bound up in racial liberation of everybody, right? Mm -hmm. That being white is, um, it comes with a lot of nice benefits, but it's a cage as well, right? It's, it's, a, it's a crisis, fragile identity, and it's, it's an identity that's built on a lie. And so if I wanna be a free person, then I have to, um, I have to participate in the liberation work of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that, sounds maybe very lofty, but that is part of what keeps me hopeful. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Jenny Mueller, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It has been an absolute joy to have you. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you as well. Always a pleasure to talk to Dr. Mueller. I can't wait for her book to come out uh, for today's positive note, I wanted to share a quote um, that's attributed to Aboriginal activists. Um, and it says, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And I think this quote really echoes some of the things that Dr. Mueller and I have talked about over this morning. So let us work together. Thank you for joining me on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Can't wait to have you back with me next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.